Greetings, everyone. This is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Chointcast, interviews and short stories from across the world that connect us with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. In episode 24, we meet a most interesting couple, Andrea Kramer and Alton Harris. Andy is a partner in the international law firm of McDermott, Will, and Emery, LLP, which was just listed as one of the 10 best big law firms for female attorneys. Despite her successful and demanding legal career, Andy has helped thousands of women navigate both the obvious and subtle gender biases they encounter in all career settings. In 2015, she received the Inspiration Award from the Coalition of Women in Law Initiatives for her continued support of women's initiatives, mentoring, and coaching. Al was a founding partner of the Chicago law firm of Ungaretti and Harris, where Andy started her legal career and which in 2015 merged into the national law firm of Nixon Peabody LLP. Over the course of his career, Al has grown increasingly concerned about the barriers and biases women face in traditionally male career environments. Because of this concern, Al has mentored and advised women in many career fields. They have been mentoring women and speaking and writing about gender communication for more than 30 years. And here we go. Welcome Andy Kramer and Al Harris to our joint cast. It's a pleasure to be talking to to two um, very accomplished attorneys who have taken on a, a very, very timely book. Well, thank you very much. Nice to be here. We're very pleased that you've had us on. Uh, likewise. And the book we're talking about today is is called Breaking Through Bias. But before we go ahead and start that, um, I'm curious if there are any favorite causes that either of you or the two of you have. Well, I would think that um, there's a—I have a— list of causes, but one that's um, uh, in addition to trying to overcome uh, gender bias in the workplace is um, uh, the Women's Treatment Center, which provides alcohol and substance abuse, detox, residential rehab to women who have small children. And um, I've been involved in the Women's Treatment Center for almost 30 years and care very much about trying to help these women and their children. And I suppose my principal, um, you know, activity uh, cause uh, has been the humanities. I've been involved with the Illinois Humanities Council for uh, almost 15 years. I served as chair. It's one of the state affiliates of the uh, National Humanities Institute in Washington, D.C., and we provide humanities training programming uh, throughout the state of Illinois. That's fantastic. And by the way, Andy, one of my my wife's favorite causes here in the Tampa area is an organization called The Spring, and it's a shelter for uh, for battered women. And oh, it's, um, it's a very quiet cause, but it's a very special one. So we definitely have some things in common here. How can the audience find the two of you? both regard to your book or your practices, how can we find you? Well, we have a website, which is uh, andyandale.com. And um, to confuse everybody, I spell Andy, A-N-D-I-E. So it's www.andyandieandalal.com. And uh, we have um, uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter. Uh, but uh, our website is probably the first place to go. Wonderful, and we'll make sure that um, that's promoted properly when I when I when I blast stuff up about this this joint cast. Thank you. Uh, one other thing, uh, tell tell us something we probably don't know about you. You're 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 attorneys. Maybe maybe you hold things pretty tightly to yourselves. What's something we ought to know about you? Well, um, that we're married. And we write books and speak and write articles together, and um, we still talk to each other. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Although Andy is, is very prone to say that while we were writing this book, Breaking Through Bias, there was only one 12-hour period when we didn't speak to each other. Uh, 
and that had to do with a disagreement about how we were going to uh, express a particularly controversial point in the book. Uh, she took a very conservative view, I took a very radical view, and uh, we worked it out. If that's the only thing that stopped you from talking together throughout the entire duration of a book, I, I, th I think that's already a, a singularity or a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and dive into the book. And by the way, again, the book is called Breaking Through Bias, and that's pretty easy to remember. Early in the book, Andy, and I believe this was in your voice, you mentioned that there are places where we can find a gender-neutral workplace. And I'm curious, where and when did you first encounter one? When did you know you were actually at a gender-neutral workplace? Well, it's interesting because you don't know you're at, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And um, when I started my career, I started my career at um, a little tiny law firm, Al's Law Firm, where they couldn't have cared if you were purple polka dotted. If you did a good job, everybody wanted you on their projects. And I left there and went to a huge firm. And what I found immediately was that because people don't know who you are, don't know what your skills are, don't know what your commitment is, they make assumptions about you based on characteristics. So being a a woman and the mother of a small child, the assumption was that I'd have to be not interested in advancing my career, which was contra to who I was, but also wasn't reflected in the fact that I joined the firm as a full partner and uh, brought my own clients with me. So um, it was an anomaly, but what I found was the assumption was going to be that I didn't um, have the commitment to, to my practice. Uh, and things like that happen in large places where people don't know you, so they rely on stereotypes and biases that they've developed over their lives. So um, you might find yourself in a gender neutral workplace, but you might you won't know it until you miss its characteristics. I think one of the tricky things about gender neutrality is that if you ask people who are running organizations whether their organization is bias-free, whether they are true meritocracies, uh, they will always say, absolutely. And if you give them lie detector tests, uh, they would always pass. So I'm inclined to think that there really aren't gender neutral workplaces. There are just workplaces that think they are because the biases that we have, the gender stereotypes and gender biases that we have are implicit. They are uh, unconscious. And it's very, very hard for us to be free of them. Uh, gender biases are a little bit like optical illusions. Uh, what we see is not what is reality. And so I'd be very wary of thinking that we encounter gender-neutral workplaces. They are very, very rare. It's interesting you mentioned that in, in the beginning of our Leadership Excellence courses, basically in an in introductory period with with a small group, say up to about 14 people, we will we'll ask who in the audience believes they're a good communicator. And most of the hands will go up. And of course, that's a setup because right, of course. Part, of what we're, part of what we're trying to showcase is that if you ask someone to self-evaluate themselves, which in, in essence is what we're talking about here, usually about 87% of people will say they're a good communicator. But if you ask the people who work for them, it drops to seventeen <laughs> percent. So there's a lot of there's a lot of um, ammo there to back up what you just said, Al. When we you know when we ask when we evaluate ourselves, there's probably a lot of stuff that we're just not aware of. But if we actually get a third party evaluation, if you will, now, right? Shocking. This kind of this kind of sets up what I what I will admit was my 
biggest question, especially at the beginning of, of reading your book, was how does the legal profession compare? You know, you're 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 part of it. You you just kind of gave the, a little bit of this testimonial of moving from a small one to a large one. But I'm curious, how does the legal profession compare, in your opinions, if you will, in fostering in fostering a gender gender neutral workplace? Well, I don't want to disappoint you, but I think the legal profession is right down at the bottom. Um, the legal profession, if you look at it. Uh, right now we're graduating an equal number of women as men, maybe slightly more women than men from law school. They're coming into our major law firms. And as we watch them advance uh, across the profession, as women get to what in the legal profession is called uh, limited or non-equity partners, which are the non-participating partners, uh, the number drops from 50% down to something less than 30%. And then when you move up to equity partners, which are the full participating partners in law firms, that number drops down below 20%. So that what we've seen is that over the past 30 years, the legal profession has made very little progress in terms of advancing women to the senior leadership ranks. Now, there are lots of efforts going on right now in the profession to change that. Uh, some firms are better than others, but I think if we look across the professions, Law's not as bad as engineering. Law's not as bad as architecture, but law's about the same as medicine, and law's about the same as manufacturing and major business. Anything to add to that, Andy? Well, I guess what um, what I would say is that <clears throat> the the profession, the uh, through our our ma major trade association, the American Bar Association, has been trying very hard to move the needle uh, by various resolutions and um, uh, changes to the professional suggested professional responsibility uh, standards. And uh, it's very, very slow going. I guess Al was nice to the financial services industry because they end up in the same bucket. So unfortunately, legal is terrible, but it's uh, it's not alone in its terribleness. Um, it, it's a serious, uh, serious problem uh, across uh, all of the professions and business in the United States. There's I think there's an. An associated thing going on here, and again, this is through, um, you could call this Jim's own professional uh, experiences as a, as a CEO and also the years of facilitating leadership training. I'm under the impression and have been for a while that one of the professions that's, I would say, somewhere between reticent or loath to actually participate in something like a leadership development program is the legal one. And right. and one of the reasons, I'll go a, maybe a, a little bit on a limb here, is I believe that, that individuals populating the profession are very nervous, actually, about things such as evaluations from the outside about their performance as a, a leader, say, rather than a manager. And I, I've, I've been curious about whether or not that would also encompass things such as uh, biases or gender stereotypes. So I'm not surprised with 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 your answer. Uh, unfortunately, I believe there's a confirmation there, and I also agree with the other industries that you highlighted. Yeah, it 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 is a uh, um, law in, in it, like so many of the other professions, where um, you, you you develop a a, a sense that uh, you've gotten where you are because of your own hard work. Uh, and uh, lose sight of all of the other people whose whose backs you've stepped on to get to the top. Frankly, the um, 
to be a successful lawyer demands an enormous amount of self-confidence. Uh, you're in negotiation, you're in a courtroom, you are constantly uh, battling, uh, if not physically, obviously, but verbally with other people. And to be successful, you need to think that you are really good. And people who think that they are really good resist the notion that they need help with anything. Uh, they are simply able to get things done. And so I'm afraid I would agree with you that lawyers are very reticent to accept the fact that they may need leadership training, that they may need managerial training. Uh, they know it. They've They've made it. They are uh, at the top of their game, and it's hard to tell them anything. It's it's very interesting. In many of our, our leadership classes, one of the very common comments, and let's just just to uh, set the stage, most of the people who attend an open enrollment course have between, say, 15 and 25 years of experience. But I would say 80% of the participants will say, my supervisor needs this training more than I do. And then I'll ask... Do you think they would be interested in attending? <laughs> and I think we know what happens when I ask that question. <laughs> so you started setting up um, something interesting there, um, Al, in terms of, let's say, temperament. And I really enjoy that your your book includes a glossary. I don't want to go over all of the terms, but two of them I called out in the review that I really believe are are central to the main points you are making. And one of them is the term Agentic. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. No, right. But I'd really uh, like for you to describe this term and expand it for us. Well, uh, agentic comes from the word agency. And uh, somebody who is an agent is somebody who has a job to do. Um, the word agentic is applied to characteristics that we typically associate with um, masculine behaviors. Um, it's not limited to masculine behaviors and it's not limited to men, which is why using the word agentic is appropriate as opposed to masculine. But the uh, agentic characteristics are being independent and strong-willed and willing to get the job done and willing to take a stand, unemotional, um, you know, somebody who you would view as a leader is somebody that you would view as agentic. And in the context of gender bias and ways to break through it, if men are expected to be assumed to be and punished, if they're not agentic in most careers in the United States, uh, then uh, women who behave in agentic ways are punished for not being communal, which comes from the word community, and those characteristics are being concerned about other people's feelings and uh, trying to be helpful, nice, warm, friendly, likable. And so what it does is it sets up this um, uh, dilemma for women and for men that women are expected to be assumed to be and punished if they're not communal and men are expected to be assumed to be and punished if they're not agentic. And I think you're going to write, you're zeroing in on on a very, very prevalent perception I'm sure we've all been conditioned with. In many of the recommendations in the book, Breaking Through Bias, many of the recommendations for women are based on another term I want to draw out, attuned gender communication. Perhaps uh, bring that up and tie to what you just described as uh, the Goldie. Goldilocks dilemma, your term, not mine. But maybe we could uh, put that all together for the audience. Well, uh, let me try to amplify attuned gender communication. One of the important things about communication is to be aware of the impressions that we're making on the people with whom we are communicating. That is, Communication may be about getting across ideas. That's certainly the case. But communication is also about getting across 
an impression that you want to convey about yourself, how you want the people with whom you're dealing to think about you as strong or kind or pleasant or forceful. And you'll want that impression to be different things in different situations. Attuned gender communication is the recognition of that desire, need to manage the impressions you're making and to adjust your communication based on the circumstances so that you can convey the impressions about yourself that you want. And you mentioned the Goldilocks dilemma. The Goldilocks dilemma is something that we think about for women, <coughs> excuse me, because <coughs> when women are communal, they're thought to be kind and sweet and nice and modest, uh, but not somebody you want to be a leader. When women behave agentically, uh, they may be viewed as forceful and uh, strong, but not as someone who is pleasant and is desirable to work with. And so that women are either viewed as too soft or too hard. And attuned gender communication is our term for how women can be just right, how they can thread that needle, work between too communal and too agentic. And that involves finding ways to adjust the communal and the agentic sides of our personality so as to convey a sense that you are both a leader and a person who welcomes the people with whom you're dealing into your orbit. In my opinion, that term may be one of the most valuable takeaways from the entire book. You know, many, many times when coaching people or facilitating the term self-awareness or let's say especially with military members in an audience, situational awareness, those are both good terms, but they don't get close enough to the specific uh, gender bias topic. It seems attuned gender communication, as you, as you just said, Al, threads that needle. It, it sounds it's a, it's a wonderful term. I have a feeling many, many women will will almost uh, intuitively reach to as, as a valuable tool or something that they've tried to reach for but didn't have a term for. I hope so. One of the things that we find, though, is that <clears throat> women are told, interestingly, men are almost never told, but women are told they need to be authentic. They need to be true to themselves. Well, we think that that's a way overused term, that we don't have a single authentic unitary self. We are lots of different qualities and aspects and capacities. And we need to be able to recognize that we have to be able to draw on those different characteristics in different situations. And so women need to recognize that they aren't a single way. They're lots of things. They have a wardrobe of clothes that they can put on in the morning, depending on the situation that they're, the occasion that they're going to be involved in. And they have a wardrobe inside themselves of qualities that they can also call on, depending on the circumstance. That sets up our next question pretty well, and maybe maybe this is one specifically for for you, Andy. You, you know, we we often read and certainly know of many male stereotypes of women. We probably don't need to delve into that, but your right. book shares stereotypes that women tend to have about themselves, and I think that's worth sharing. Well, it turns out that um, very often people think that stereotypes and biases are just things that we have or other people have about other people. And we carry stereotypes and biases about ourselves. And many of the stereotypes that women have about themselves 
are um, buying into the stereotypes that other people have of them. For example, well, I'm bad in math. Uh, well, it turns out that the studies show, for example, that women who say that they're that they are not good in math or can't aren't comfortable in in doing mathematics. Uh, very often are better at it than the men who say they're great at it. But they've been trained, socialized, uh, convinced that uh, somehow they don't have the skills. And so what happens is that the stereotypes that women hold about themselves, that we hold about ourselves as women, uh, is very often the stereotypes that are going to limit our um, uh, willingness to take on challenges. And I think a lot of it comes from uh, being uh, little girls and little boys at uh, three, four, five years old, where boys will be boys and they can run around and get crazy, but girls are supposed to make sure they don't tear their tights and that they don't get their dress dirty. Um, and that they behave and they be good little girls. And so a lot of the that fl flops over into education and into the workplace where women um, are very often less uh, uh, less willing to raise their hand for complicated or challenging projects because they've bought into the stereotypes that somehow they're not as good as the guy sitting next to them. Almost as though it's fuel for a self-fulfilling prophecy loop of sorts. Exactly. We call it self-limiting biases. I'm making a note of that. So there's a lot of books and self-help stuff about women don't have any confidence. And, you know, that's the problem, that women just aren't confident. Well, the society and the stereotypes and the biases basically inculcate in women that they're that they're not, you know, that they're not as good, that they need to be more careful and thoughtful. Sure. We see this um, self-limiting bias in all sorts of ways. Uh, women choose different majors in college than men do. Uh, women are not entering engineering or computer science or mathematics. And then when we get into the workplace, we see that same gender segregation as well. And that's largely because of a sense that, oh, that's a man's profession. That's a man's job. Or men th saying, I'm not going to go into nursing or uh, teaching because that's a woman's profession. So we've got all of these, this baggage that hangs on that leads us to make choices that are entirely uh, inappropriate based on our actual ability, actual capacity, actual uh, what would provide us with fulfillment. It's a, it's a great point. There's a, a close colleague that I've worked with for years. He's a, he's a relatively young company president in the electrical transmission and distribution business. And one of the areas that's very, very difficult for the company to populate are, are um, field engineers. And you can, you can count on you know, a hand or two in an, an area how many, how many people are, how many women are even interested or, or have the educational credentials going, going on that engineering track to where he can hire. He, 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 he could probably hire every, every woman with those credentials within a, a, you know, a several hundred mile radius of, of his headquarters. <laughs> Right, right. Well, you know, what part of that problem is, is that um, uh, women who are who are interested in engineering, who are interested in, you know, STEM professions, uh, who are interested in law very often, um, are discouraged because it other people feel that it's not a good profession for them. And in um, in school, uh, the, the woman who finds herself as the only woman in the in the math class or the science class, um, it it's she doesn't get applauded for being the only woman in there. She gets ridiculed 
And we have so many stories that we've been told of, of young women who, um, when they raise their hand in an advanced math class or something, the men in the class start to guffaw, and the professor doesn't do anything to um, dispel that or to tell or to make them stop. And so, after a while, they, you know, you need a really thick skin to be able to stick that out and a strong desire, and it weeds out a lot of people who would be fabulous field engineers or or other types of in other types of careers. It strikes home for for our family. We have a we have a daughter who is at a very competitive university and she's she's on a stem track not um not not uh engineering as um, i went through many many years ago but um it, it definitely provokes a lot of thoughts one of the more mm-hmm. interesting things that you wrote about now you didn't use the term journaling i'm introducing that but but you you were writing about recommending that women specifically record positive events that affirm the the path that they're on. And in my leadership facilitation, we would call that journaling. And that's rarely brought up in in anyone's books. So I would love for you to describe how you came to that conclusion that journaling is a powerful way of giving one's uh, to self-coach or to give oneself feedback affirmation well two, two we, we really address that in two different ways one is in keeping track of the positive things that happen during the year is really important in the context of um, providing a, a review a self-evaluation of what you've accomplished in whatever the review cycle is in in your um, in your workplace, and that's one way that it becomes very important. But I think the other way, which is closer to, um, as you've described, journaling, is that what we found is that a lot of self-talk, a lot of a lot of what we do is convincing ourselves that we've got what it takes to get it done. And in doing the research for breaking through bias. Uh, we came upon um, a, a whole line of, of research which involves writing down, recording, remembering um, positive experiences where you felt powerful or you felt creative or you felt totally in control. And if you write this down, write one of these situations down, uh, spend a few minutes writing it down before you go into a difficult meeting, an interview, a difficult conversation, the um, other people perceive you to be more powerful, to be more confident, to be more creative, uh, because you've convinced yourself. It's sort of a mind over matter kind of thing, but hey, it works. And um, uh, we've been recommending this to people who are who've been having trouble getting uh, jobs, and miraculously, many of them have gotten um, callbacks and 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 job uh, offers that they would never have gotten. And a lot of it has to do with, um, in many ways, it's sort of a, an, an add-on to the attuned gender communication point that we've discussed previously. It's a wonderful point. And it's it's very interesting. Usually, when we bring up the concept of journaling in in a leadership course, most people will say that they've done the dear diary events, simply logging the day. But you've gone much further than that in your description, and it's um, it's just to be commended. It's 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 rarely done, and I like the way that you've even described the application of that going into a job interview. That's I'm going to add that to my repertoire in terms of ways to bring that up. Okay, we got we got um, three more things to cover here. On page 102, okay. you mentioned that women frequently undermine their own credibility or ideas. Can you throw a couple examples where this typically may happen? Well, the most obvious way in which this happens is that women, because they are concerned about coming across as too agentic and being viewed because they are as unlikable, women will often often soften what they have to say 
They won't be as forceful by saying things like, I may be off base here, but uh, this may have been brought up before, but I'm not sure this is on the point, but all of those things that women so often say are intended by them unconsciously to be used to make them appear to be uh, more gentle, more approachable, more pleasant. But in fact, what they do is that they undermine the value of what they have to say. When we say things like, I may be off base here, but immediately what people hear is this person doesn't really know what she's talking about. And so women do this far too often. Another way that women undermine their credibility is by saying, I'm sorry, <laughs> in response to things that go wrong, that have nothing to do with things that they've done. Uh, when people say, gee whiz, we lost that important client uh, and the woman in the meeting says, I'm sorry. Uh, everyone looks at her and thinks, well, what did you do to make us lose That's that right. client? That's right. What did you do? Would you screw up? Right. It's your fault, obviously, because nobody else is going to admit it. So women, women say, I'm sorry, as a way to connect, as a way to show that they are empathetic. But they use, them, they use that phrase far too often and it does undermine their own uh, credibility, other people's sense of their value and uh, their capacity for leadership. Is there an additional favorite to add here, Andy? Um, well, I love the um, putting in a lot of, of filler words to try to appear uh, as if, you're not as com confident of what the conclusion is. So um, we have various um, verbal uh, ticks and things that will stick in to appear to be less forceful, less strong. Lots of ums or likes or, or things that, words that don't add anything to what we're saying. And then that's, again, another way. Women, you, they wouldn't say, well, I'm doing this to be more communal. But the reality is that over time, we know, we learn by the way other people react to us. And so women will sort of dummy down in a way that that hurts them when they think that it's actually helping them appear to be more likable. And one of the roads, one of the words I wrote down as you were as you were describing those, especially at the beginning with the the use of the word "but," is a, a lot of self qualification. Right, self deprecation. Exactly. Really. That's that's a better term. Right. Now you list a little later in the book three specific situations that are difficult for women to just say no to, and so I'd um, I'd love for you to to unpack that for the audience. Sure. Sure. Um, one of the another problem that very often women have in navigating gender biased workplaces is that there's all sorts of difficult and tricky sorts of interactions that we can have. And one of them is saying no. And there's some situations where a woman needs to really evaluate what she's doing before she agrees to do something. And the three that I think you're meant you're referring to is one is if we're asked to do something, a task or a project that is clearly not going to contribute to advancing our careers, yet we say yes to it. Women are asked far more than men to serve on the social committee to set up a, uh, an administrative uh, session to get the coffee, to do all of the sort of housekeeping details. They are asked to be the office housewife. And women, because they don't want to come off as harsh or uh, defiant or unpleasant, 
too often say yes. And so what we find is that women are in those roles far more than men. And they don't have any value when it comes time to be evaluated for your contribution to the organization at the end of the year. Um, the second one is taking on a project that'll clearly advance your career, but you've got too much on your plate already. So that if you say yes to it, you're going to sabotage yourself as opposed to really advance. And so there you need to be in a position where you can evaluate whether this is the right time for it, uh, whether you um, could lay on the table all of the other things that you've got going so that they can get reallocated. But if you just say yes, then you're going to leave somebody angry uh, because you won't have enough time to get the, the, the jobs done in the quality and time that's required. And then the thir third one is when somebody comes to you and says that they want you to change a position within your organization and you're not at all sure what the career implications are. For example, in many organizations, if you're in a line position where um, you're working your way up, you clearly have a path to promotion. But if somebody comes to you and asks you if you want to head up the HR function or some other um, uh, staff. staff, you know, non-line position, uh, then what happens there is you've stepped sideways or backwards and you may not know it. I really like uh, a couple of those that, that you've just shared. Certainly it, it comes up in executive coaching a lot. The can't say no to the additional tasks. And I'm, again, I'm going to borrow a, the, the term that you brought up, Al, the, the office housewife. You know, it's 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 interesting. I'm the local fundraising chair for Tampa uh, Autism Speaks Walk, mm -hmm. and I'm almost the sole male on that committee. And now you've got me thinking about that. <laughs> so, well, good for you. You're a good man to um, do that. But you're right. Why is it that the women? Oh yeah, because they're. They're going to do it because the job has to get done. And it's a, even if it's a dirty job, someone's got to do mm -hmm. it. I'll do it. Sure. An interesting other point about saying no, which I think you, you just triggered for me, is very often that the men don't volunteer for the jobs that they know are not going to advance their careers. So in a meeting, if the leader or the boss says, I have this Project X that needs to be done, and it's a project that is not going to advance anybody's career, what happens is the men very often are looking down at their belts or checking their fingernails, and the one woman or two women foolishly look at the leader, and he tags them to do it. it yeah, it's, um, it reminds me of the military, where we're, we're, we're taught over time to be very wary about volunteering for stuff. I think there's a correlation there. <laughs> So I've got one more one more question, and it, it ties more to to a comment in in the beginning of the book. Uh, it's a pullout quote. I have a pullout quote where there's a message encouraging men to mentor and sponsor women, which um, which I think is wonderful advice. But it really begs a question, especially today. Any advice to to the men how to do this given this? electrically charged me to environment we're in right now how do we how do we continue to support women that we want to when it can look a little bit risky right now well you're absolutely right it looks risky and indeed because it looks risky we see uh, men pulling back being unwilling to mentor women saying there's nothing in it for me except risk and so we see men uh, withdrawing, not stepping forward. So how do we get them to do that, to step forward? I think there are a couple of ways. One, if organizations will set up formal mentoring policies, practices, such that when men are mentoring women, it is recognized that that's part of their job that they are doing it because that's expected 
of male leaders. That's expected of all leaders. So that when Johnny is meeting with Susie, uh, people say, oh, Johnny's been appointed to be Susie's mentor. That's why they're together, as opposed to suspicion or concern that, in fact, there is something inappropriate going on. Another way that this could be done is to make clear to men by women that they need their help. When women will go to men and say, you've been successful in very interesting and unique ways. I would like to learn how you did that, how you got there, and let's talk about it. Not let's talk about it over drinks necessarily, but how about a coffee? How about a meeting in your office or mine with the door open? How about a meeting in a conference room? There are lots of ways in which men can be drawn in to the mentoring relationship by being convinced that their advice is extraordinarily valuable and that many, many women need their help. I think that's terrific guidance. Anything to add, Andy, on that one? Well, I think that um, uh, the one piece that uh, Al didn't mention is the fact that men are reluctant because they're also concerned that their intentions could be misunderstood. And that's one that I think is harder to provide any sort of flat advice on, but the, the, it's, it, there's nothing wrong with being nice and being helpful. And in fact, it benefits the company company's bottom line. So um, men should, men of good intentions uh, should not be concerned uh, in a way that we see that they're uh, pulling back because they're afraid that um, their intentions could be misunderstood. And that's a wonderful point. It, made, it, it triggered a, a thought. I gave a talk a couple of years ago at my my our, our daughter's alma mater and interestingly enough i chose a, a top a topic of of networking in in of course the professional sense and i wanted to change the way people think about networking and i invited that audience and they're mostly um, high school juniors and seniors at the time i invited them to mm -hmm. be able to reach out to me and often when you know you're in a senior role talking to to kids essentially they may be reluctant to, to call you out on it. Well, it was interestingly enough, I got a call on my cell phone, one of those unknown numbers, but it, it didn't look, it looked like a real number to answer. And it was, it was several months later, it was actually a young lady who had been in that class, and she, she wanted to know if I could, I could help her connect to, uh, to an, her, to an employer where she want, where she could get a job. And I was, I was a little stunned at first, and then I thought, Oh my goodness, she's she's calling me out on uh, on on that offer I made, and so I and I told her I said, let me let me chew on this. I'm gonna let me let me think about you know my Rolodex or what I can do to help you. And I realized um, she was she was not afraid of doing that, but the offer had to be put out there. Uh, right, right, right. You need permission. Very often, women need permission in a way that, that men don't. And that was a huge takeaway for me. So these are wonderful answers to the questions. And the only other thing I want to ask the two of you about is what's next? What projects and new book are you working on now that you can share with the audience? Well, uh, we have a new book uh, at the publisher now. It's called It's Not You, It's the Workplace. Women's Conflict at Work and the Bias that Built It. And it's uh, about women's perceived and actual difficulties in working with other women. One of the things that we continually hear as we speak about gender bias uh, and our book, Breaking Through Bias, 
is that women come up to us and say, you're absolutely right about gender bias. You're absolutely right about male uh, agendic and communal stereotypes. But what you don't talk about is how mean women are to other women, that I work with men just fine. It's the women that I have trouble with. You've got to start talking about that. And so we began to dig into that subject and found that there are a lot of misunderstandings, confusion uh, surrounding this entire topic. And so what we've tried to do is dig into that whole issue of women working with women and try to unpack it, try to provide some helpful advice, try to show that it isn't because women are inherently mean to other women. It's because women work in biased workplaces that they are thrown into situations that put them into conflict with other women. Well, I got to tell you, I admire your courage for taking on that topic because uh, having, you know, we're, um, my wife and I are, you know, we're, we're, we're parents and watching the way daughters can communicate at, ten, at age 10 on Facebook with each other, it looks, it, it looks like uh -huh. you can start early with your research and I'm sure you did that already. But uh, I uh -huh. very much like to review that that book as well. There, I'm sure there's a lot of leadership connections, but um, mostly wanted to thank you, um, Andy and Al, Breaking Through Bias. Uh, what a terrific joint cast today. Thank you so much. Thank you. We appreciate being um, uh, being included in, in your joint cast today. We, we very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening today. If you've enjoyed the Chointcast, a positive iTunes review and kind word to your friends and colleagues would be most appreciated. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E, and visit the bookshelf at www.choink.com. Want to enroll in a Leadership Excellence course? Visit my homepage at www.academyleadership.com. Stay energized.